0: Digital Drift, Episode 1, recorded Saturday, 25th of January, 2014, Kill Bill. to Digital Drift, which begins the third volume of my podcasting work. You can consider this a rebirth and a refocusing of aims for the Digital Gonzo format, because this time I won't be doing it alone. Would you please welcome to the show my new permanent co-host, Mrs. Sharon Shaw.
1: Hello, We're looking to expand the conversation beyond the video game and movie reviews that Gonzo has become known for. Despite the stressful juggling act of regular podcasting, it turns out Alex just can't stop. Can't. (laughs) And I thought it was about time I joined in.
0: Three of the things that were making Digital Gonzo hard to manage, along with the rest of my daily responsibilities, included lengthy commitments to long-running series, especially Batman. Oh, always with the Batman. Difficulty in finding and organising guests and enormous amounts of research, requiring me to become a mini-expert on everything I covered. It also meant a fairly small stable of excellent guests, but less variety among them, and indeed, the topics at hand, coupled with less cross-pollination with other communities. Now, Sharon being here permanently means that I always have someone to talk to, someone clever and fun, I might add, and we share most of our findings anyway. We'll still be talking movies, but like the one you're currently listening to and next week's Robocop trilogy, we'll run through them in shorter order than before, getting to the meat with less obsessing about the minutiae.
1: We're also going to be focusing on more thought-provoking topics, like one of the most popular shows last year, Fan Response. You'll see podcasts emerging centred around historical and current representation and symbolism, more conceptual discussions to get everybody thinking and talking. And much like some of the best episodes of Alex's first podcast, Digital Cowboys, we're going to be interviewing people from way outside our close-knit
0: circle. We have a ton of ideas for shows already on the list, and you should keep an eye on the redesigned Digital Drift forums for more news of those. And of course, Gonzo Planet itself is now being retitled Digital Drift, to better represent the new focus on just the podcast. It will be less of a regular show than Gonzo to relieve some of that pressure. But also, since the people we talk to will be well-versed in whatever subject matter is on the table, Sharon and I don't have to be the experts. We just have to ask the right questions.
1: We're hoping the result will be a more diverse podcast that grows well beyond the standard 1,500 listeners and gets a lot more people talking. Using the male-female perspective at our disposal, we're aiming to widen the viewpoint on geek culture and explore identities and ideas that may not get much of a deeply considered look in elsewhere.
0: But don't worry, we'll still go back and finish The Hobbit trilogy. We'll still be covering Legend of Korra. You'll hear quizzes and retrospective compilations of previous work. And of course it won't always just be Sharon and I. We'll still be getting on guests to chat with. Neil Taylor from GameBurst is on next week talking Robocop. We will also keep the capacity for your essay material from the dynamic analysis shows. Pretty much everything worth keeping and every good idea from the first two volumes of the digital series will be retained and polished up on this one single podcast feed.
1: And we're going to start with the last movie shows Alex recorded before the very first Gonzo movie reviews, which were, of course, Star Wars. This was originally put together for the very short-lived Digital Cowboys Movie Club, so most of you won't have heard it. We present our two-part Kill Bill review, recorded all the way back in May 2010, with some final analysis we're recording today. You can hear what we were like back then, what's changed in four years, what hasn't, and as an effective prototype for Digital Gonzo, it serves as a perfect springboard to introduce this evolutionary new podcast series to you all.
0: And with that, we cue the music.
1: Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games and media culture.
0: Welcome to the Digital Drift.
3: My
0: baby shot me down. Okay, so why Kill Bill? Why are we we discussing this and why you and me? It's uh, probably my second favourite film after Lord of the Rings. There's just so much to talk about and so much to deconstruct with this thing. And I haven't heard enough people talking about the kind of things that we talk about with it. So we're just going to throw a a lot of those things out there and, and, and maybe... I can almost guarantee that after listening to this you'll go at least oh, I've got to watch Kill Bill again. Or if you've seen it recently, um, go back and and look at a couple of things you might have missed, because um, there's just so much in there.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I don't know where I can place it in my top films. Um, It's certainly up quite high. And I would say it's absolutely my favourite Tarantino film. With only Inglorious Bastards and Jackie Brown coming close, in all fairness.
0: Before we start, I'm just going to address the whole two films, not one thing. A lot of people, when it first came out, were complaining bitterly that this wasn't two films, and um, when you actually watch them back to back, you realise a. How well organised they both are and how, how well sectioned in, into each film they are. And one of the first ones a samurai film with a various mix of other genres. The second ones a western with another smattering of other genres. And they work perfectly in a double sitting. And obviously if you had only one available to you at the time, then you could maybe bitch about the fact that you had to wait for another six months to see it. But now, I mean... Me, immediately after 2 was released on DVD, that became null and void. Anyone still complaining about, oh, well, we don't get the four-hour cut? I'm not sure what getting up two hours in to change discs is is really a problem. I mean, ultimately, you got to rest your legs. It doesn't make it perfect to watch it in one four-hour sitting. I mean, that's fantastic, but you don't have to. I, while I'm interested in the idea of a four-hour cut, I don't think it's necessarily going to be better than these, as it is.
1: I think if they were going to make a, a longer
0: heat, this is not a they when it comes to Kill Bill or in fact most of you know all of Tarantino's films these are totally auteur this is coming from one man with a very singular vision for what he specifically wants
1: well agreed I was referring more to the distributors but if they were going to put it all together on one package one disc I think you'd still need an interval in all fairness that um, end bit where it cuts off and moves into volume two is the perfect place to stop for ten minutes and be sat there going Oh my god, what's gonna happen next? I think you need that break. Mm. <laughs>
0: First ever seen we'll hop skip and jump through this the bride breathing frantically on the floor and then bill shoots her immediately in the head it's the most important event in the whole series because it, it kicks the whole thing off do you
4: find me sadistic you know, i bet i could fry an egg on your head right now to. No, kiddo. I'd like to believe you're aware enough, even now, to know that there's nothing sadistic in my actions. Well, maybe towards those other jokers. But not you. No, kiddo. At this moment, this is me in my most masochistic.
3: Well, it's your baby.
1: It is clearly quite crucial to knowing where it's going to go from there, and especially because the film jumps around so much in terms of chronology.
0: But it gives you no motivation. It's just a thing, it doesn't say what.
1: That's right, and uh, although one of the most interesting things I find about it, um, and I'll discuss this more when we move on to the next few segments, is that it sets this character up as uh, quite helpless. She's lying there on the floor, she's surrounded by pools of blood, and her ultimate introduction is somebody shoots her in the head and considering where her character goes from there i find that a very interesting introduction
0: but it tells you all you need to know about why she wants revenge in the first place
1: yeah absolutely it it gives you the the key essence of what's in the story and why she does what she does and who the characters are i mean even though her last sentence is cut off so abruptly you know what she said and it illustrates who those characters are for you, so you know exactly who they are going in.
0: Okay, so Bride versus Copperhead. (laughs) Now, I'd just like to say this is probably one of the best girl-on-girl fights, maybe even one of the best fights I've ever seen on screen um specifically it never makes an issue of the fact that they're girls it never sexies it up and goes oh look uh, it never goes um, sorry Paul I know you love this film but it never goes DOA it's just really skillful, really economical fighting and it's, it's, it's showy in that kind of Yan Wu Ping way but it's vicious as well and you never doubt for a second that both of them want to kill each other
1: yeah absolutely I mean that's the the key thing about any fight is you need the emotional impact behind it it's like any sex scene you need to see in the characters what they're feeling and why they're doing what they're doing if all they're doing is going through the motions then it's going to be completely an intro. Uh, You're not going to believe what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's just dancing.
0: To go off on a tangent, George Lucas wasted six hours getting to the Obi-Wan-Anakin fight at the end of episode three. And it doesn't have anywhere near the power and grace and and ferocity of this fight, which Tarantino took two minutes to get to. It's choreographed by Yen Wu Ping, and I heartily recommend you guys track down every single other one of his movies. He has done the following, and these are just like the ones I've actually heard of. Drunken Master, which is the Jackie Chan film. Once Upon a Time in China. Once Upon
4: a Time in
0: China... The Twin Warriors, Iron Monkey, Fist of Legend, The Matrix, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Kung Fu Hustle. There is no one else who can actually chore... uh, Name one other uh, action choreographer who even comes close... To this. The Fighting in the Bourne series, for example, and, uh, I suppose Batman and, uh, Casino Royale have a real urgency and economy to them, which makes kind of this sort of showy kung fu maybe better suited to sort of the wire work of, of Hong Kong cinema, and it's, it's more realistic. It could, if Bourne was fighting in the Yen Wu Ping style, you would just be lifted out of it and go, wow, that looks awesome, as opposed to, Christ, this guy's a killing machine. But the way he does it for overly stylized films like this in The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, films which, um, if effectively establish a fantasy land and put you in there, you completely and utterly get absorbed in this kind of combat, and it's 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 flawless.
5: This Pasadena homemaker's name is Jeannie Bell. Her husband is Doctor Lawrence Bell. But back when we were acquainted four years ago, her name was Vernita Green. Her code name was Copperhead. Mine, Black Mamba. Do you tell? You still
2: take cream and sugar, right?
1: Yeah.
5: So I suppose it's a little late for an apology, huh? You suppose correctly. Look, bitch. I need to know if you're going to start any more shit around my baby girl. You can relax for now. I'm not going to murder you in front of your child, okay? That's being
2: more rational than Bill led me to
5: believe you were capable of. It's mercy, compassion, and forgiveness I lack, not rationality. Look, I know I fucked you over. I fucked you over bad. I wish to God I hadn't, but I did. You have every right to want to get even. No, 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 no. (sighs) To get even? Even, Stephen. I would have to kill you. Go up to Nikki's room, kill her. Then wait for your husband, the good Dr. Bell, to come home and kill him. That would be even, Vernita. That'd be about square. Look, if I could go back in a machine, I would. But I can't. All I can tell you is that I'm a different person now. Oh, great. I don't care. Be that as it may, I know I don't deserve your mercy or your forgiveness. However, I beseech you for both on behalf of my daughter. Bitch, you can stop right there. Just because I have no wish to murder you before the eyes of your daughter does not mean that parading her around in front of me is going to inspire sympathy. You and I have unfinished business. And not a goddamn fucking thing you've done in the subsequent four years, including getting knocked up, is gonna change that
0: and then at the end you get the third most important scene in the entire series of films the bride murders copperhead uh, after she shoots her for, with a gun from <laughs> a cereal box marked kaboom check that next time and misses and the bride he, he kicks a coffee cup into her which is swiftly followed by a knife and then nikki's standing there her four-year-old daughter and she says something along the lines of
1: she just says when you grow up if you still feel raw about it i'll be waiting
0: i'll be waiting and that that is going to come back. Because, basically, there is a circle of uh, violence and retribution there. And you can see in Nikki's eyes, she's just... It's fantastic child acting because she doesn't go, Mommy! Mommy! She just stands, looking at the bride, looking at her mother. And you go, Christ. She's just started another circle again. This is going to come back and bite her in the ass. And it's it's what he starts with. He starts the film with continuing the circle... That would be where most directors would end it. Okay, the mcgraw universe. Earl McGraw, played by Michael Parks, is a character first introduced him from Dust Till Dawn. He's the sheriff who gets shot in the head by Quentin Tarantino. He's that uh, one who, who's like, Well, Nadine's got a cross to bear taking care of that
6: potato head
0: turns up in Kill Bill. Uh, He's basically the sheriff assigned to sort of pick up her body and and try and work out what went on in the massacre in El Paso at the Twin Pines. The fact that he's in both films, and he's also in Grindhouse, it it creates a whole universe which suggests that all of these films are taking place at the same time. In the way that Marvel Comics used to basically take place all in the same universe, so Spider-Man could technically walk into the same comic as the Fantastic Four and fight Galactus, in this universe, technically... Seth Gecko could wander into Kill Bill at any moment. He doesn't, but he could. Other films which happen to uh, share this particular universe, Sin City. Deadly Little Miho uses Hattori Hanzo swords. Inglorious Bastards definitely has shines of the fact that it, it takes place in the same universe. In fact, there's implications, considering what happens to Hitler in that film, that the World Second World War might have actually gone in a st- completely different way which may have led to Japan being developed in a different way, which might explain why you're allowed to carry katanas on commercial airlines there. And we can only assume, since red apple cigarettes uh, stretch across all of Tarantino's films, including Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dogs, that all of those films also take place in the same universe.
1: Certainly no reason why they shouldn't.
0: Uh, Actually, now that's... That reminds me, there are various different characters mentioned in things like Pulp Fiction. I think, um Mr. Blonde's name is Vic Vega, and I think they are, in, in a, a deleted scene, they mention his brother, who's Vincent Vega, who's uh, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. So, Tarantino's always been very keen on his films uh, interlacing. And I call this the McGraw-Niverse, because El McGraw is the one uniting character that stretches across all of them.
4: Who's Brian? Don't know. The name on the marriage certificate is Arlene Machiavelli. That's a fake. We've all just been calling her the bride on account of the dress. He didn't tell her she was pregnant. Man, had to be a mad dog. She's a goddamn good-looking gal like that in the head. Look at her. Hay-colored hair. Big eyes. She's a little blood-spattered angel. Son number one. Yeah. It's a tall drinker. Cock ain't dead.
0: And then you get twisted nerve that whistling song, and L sneaks into the bride's hospital to poison her in her sleep. And Bill calls her up and says no. It's really interesting, if we flash forward a bit to the moment when um, Elle kills Bud, she phones up Bill and says that the bride has slipped a black mamba into his trailer. Bill knows that Elle is slippery and poisonous and likes to kill people in their sleep. She tried to do it to the bride at the beginning here. She did it to It's It's her style. She's clearly done it before. She's clearly going to do it again. Bill would know the second she told him that that's not Beatrix's style. She's not sneaky like that. She goes head on. So at that point, when L calls Bill, he is probably making up his mind to kill L. It's pure speculation, but uh, th- there's no way that if you know L like Bill knows L, that you're going to buy that B killed Bud with a black mamba. Speculate on why you think L hates the bride so much.
1: Um, I think it's pretty clear that there's a, a rivalry of sorts between them, possibly even a, a sisterly type of rivalry. They are you know, both look quite similar in the, the tall, slim, blonde category.
0: I remember Tarantino talking about the fact that in this particular universe, blonde is a, a race of sorts and they hate each other.
1: Um, maybe, but um, certainly... There seems to be a a feeling with Elle. I mean, she somehow manages to convince Pai Mei to take her on as a student as well, um, and obviously fails or or doesn't meet his high standards. Um, Because
0: she's got too much pride.
1: Yeah, that's that's obviously part of it. But there's an essence to her that suggests she's always felt that Beatrix is her main touchstone, in a way. She will know she's good when she beats Beatrix.
0: Mm, mm. Um, Which is why it infuriates her when Bob gets the better of her absolutely
1: she wanted to take her down herself Mm -hmm. ultimately she's spent her whole not necessarily her whole life but certainly the whole time that they've all been working for Bill Uh, Beatrix is the one that she has tried to top that she has um, you know measured herself against and I think it's quite possible if you look at the way that she talks to Bill as well um, that she's felt that Beatrix was a rival for Bill's affections in some way, that that she resents her a bit for being the one that managed to capture his heart Mm. um and that it's it's possible she's even made overtures to bill at some point and he's turned her down flat in favor of beatrix and that's made her even more angry
0: she's even got a name california mountain snake which is not the most famous snake in the world certainly not the deadliest it's kind of a moniker she's been stuck with i'm sure she would have preferred something more deadly in american just like cobra or something but uh but no california mountain snake not the most famous snake in the world so she goes in tries to kill B Bill says no she gets enraged and then we cut to five years later the bride wakes up (laughs) and there's two fascinating things about this when she wakes up well the first is that she hasn't the the baby weight that she would have had um, with, with B has just seems to have melted off her as if she's been doing crunches for those five years, uh, which any um, formerly pregnant woman will tell you is absolute bullshit, but because uh, she'd have giant saggy bags just sort of lapping around the... Uh, they'd just be sort of overflowing around, around the sides of the hospital bed and dragging to... they could practically have tied her to the gurney with those things.
1: Uh, first of all, it's four years. Four years. But um, I, I think you could make some allowances for the fact that she's been fed through a tube for those four years. She could have lost some of the weight. the muscle tone is is what would have been at issue mm. um, but um, but yeah, she wakes up, and obviously her uh, her first response is um, she does she realize that?" The baby's gone yeah. first. That's the first thing she she sees, isn't it? And, and she um, screams, it,
0: and you get that horrible moment where she's basically absolutely destroyed because he's taken everything from her.
1: Absolutely. Um, and then she looks at her hands to see how much time she's lost and is able to tell um, by the lines on her palm, effectively, that it's been four years. And her reaction then is something that I find quite interesting she has her emotional moment she comes to the realisation of what's passed, what time's passed, the fact that um, that the child's gone and then she just stops when she realises that somebody's coming down the hallway, she just cuts it off and waits to see who's coming, why they're coming and what her next reaction should be
0: She's a creature of instinct. She was she was that before she became pregnant, and she relapses into that immediately, lies straight back down and, and and lies in wait like a snake once again. So then there's Buck and the trucker. And he gets possibly one of the worst, most horrible, grim, head smashed in door, Kratos style deaths in the whole film. Why don't you like this? Why do you always turn away? I mean, you actually watched it this time, but you usually go, and turn away. So many people die in so many horrible ways in this film. Why is this too much?
1: I don't know. It's not that it's too much. I can't explain it. And I'm I'm sat there thinking, of course he deserves it. And I, I love the scene. I love the way that Beatrix starts off as this uh, unconscious figure, she's lying in a hospital bed. She's got through the fact that somebody was going to kill her in her sleep. Uh, prior to that, she was in a, a bride's dress, heavily pregnant, lying on the floor, covered in blood, shot in the head. It's, With the exception of the, the Copperhead fight, the scenes that have laid down her character so far have showed she gets put in the position of victim, and her response is to demonstrate quite clearly that she is not a victim. The way she reacts is to smack back and to react to what's being done to her uh, and not allow that to go unpunished if it deserves punishment and to stop it immediately if it's something that um, needs to be stopped. Her attack on Bud is entirely understandable. The way she does it is all she has. She doesn't have the use of her legs at that point. She's got the knife she got off the trucker, that's it, and she's got the door. She is very focused on finding Bill, so that's obviously the first thing she asks him, and he hasn't got a clue, but she doesn't seem to recognise that straight away, and that's fine.
0: But it does lay out her pl- immediate plan. Oh, absolutely,
1: action. absolutely. And As again, if the
0: title wasn't enough.
1: Well, indeed. And again, that's very crucial to her character. But the only reason that I can think of for why the moments when... Bud's head gets smacked in the door are so, I don't even know the actual word for it. Uncomfortable? Uncomfortable I suppose It's, it's like nails down a blackboard for me, it puts my teeth on edge and it's, I can only assume because of my reaction to something else that comes later in the film, which we'll talk about when that crops up it's got something to do with splintering bone, the noise of his skull cracking is what makes me have to grit my teeth and turn away I just, I can't look at that I just cannot.
0: Now, the animated sequence, which is by Production IG, which is a Japanese anime studio, I th- they've done a huge amount of extra stuff in the past, but uh, things like Ghost in the Shell, uh, they've done some Evangelion, Blood the Last Vampire. And The most interesting thing about this particular sequence is uh, Orihime's parents being killed. When her father gets stabbed with a, what may be a Hanzo sword, it pans up to reveal a ring. Just a few minutes earlier, you got the same sequence with Bill holding his sword while he's talking to Elle, and he's wearing a ring. It's a slightly different ring. That is not a mistake. That is not a coincidence. That is not an accident. The man who killed Orin Ishii's father was Bill. <laughs> And immediately afterwards, she, young Orenishi, stares into his face and scowls. And he knew she was there. She created an insane hatred for the people who killed her parents. And you see what happens to the shogun. She stabs him, she kills him. Again, that's the other sequence you absolutely can't stand.
1: Yeah, it's not the stabbing, it's not the method she does it, it's not even the shooting the limbs off the uh, bodyguards. It's the teeth. It's when she stabs him and he closes his mouth so tightly that his teeth start to splinter and that's what makes me think it's got to be something to do with bone splintering that really just makes me cringe i have no idea why i'd be very interested to find out but Mm. other kinds of violence i have no problem with whatsoever slicing
0: is fine bone shattering is not good
1: but bone splintering it's splintering very specifically just a straightforward smack and crack i can handle that but it's Splintering,
0: But, yeah, this is pure speculation, um, but it's, it's based on the evidence that has presented us with. Uh, Bill, as he leaves the uh, house, sets it on fire and looks back, smirking towards the bed, as if to say, get out of that one. She gets out of that one. She kills boss Matsumoto and clearly at some point went after Bill. And Bill, being the snake charmer, must have said or done something that made her decide not to kill him, something along the lines of... This was just business. This is just what he did for a living. This is his work. He didn't kill her father out of some personal vendetta he was asked to. He was the sword, effectively. Whatever he said, it was enough to get her not only to not kill him, but to actually uh, join his deadly Viper assassin squad.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's pretty obvious that she does see him and she does recognise him, and I agree with you. I think the, the way it's... The little hints are given there. I think it is Bill who does that. Um... When she tracks him down later in life, I think what you said about him being the sword is quite key. Clearly, within that warrior culture, there is this feeling that you don't blame the sword for deaths, um, unlike the let's get rid of all bladed objects that seems to knock around the uh, UK these days, starting with all the movie replicas and the, uh, you know, highly ornate crafted um artistic swords that people have got hanging on their walls because of course you know those are the most potentially dangerous things in the world let's disregard the fact that the most common murder weapon is your humble carving knife which i don't see them banning that anytime soon but this idea that uh, it's if you're being used as a weapon you are not personally responsible for it it's quite key to the assassins Creed,
0: That's a little plug there.
1: It's quite, uh, in essence, the way that, that you can justify doing all those things, because you know that you're not really responsible for them. You're being paid by somebody else to do it, and it allows you that measure of emotional distance. And I think if uh, Orin could put that between her and the death of her parents and see Bill as simply the the weapon and not the hand she could use him as a a teacher and somebody who would put her on the path to her obviously quite strong political ambitions and that wanting to to rule that world having seen it and been so horrified by it it's then turned into a fascination and a wanting to be part of it uh, that she gets very very good at and, and clearly rises very highly in
0: it also doesn't hurt that she actually becomes an assassin herself clearly before she uh, goes after bill and so can obviously get with that particular mindset and your theory is that faith from Mira's edge is more than a little bit based on her the older version of her in the animated sequence.
1: Oh, just a touch. That image of her standing on the corner of the building in the red catsuit with her hair kind of all spiky and blowing back in the wind. I, I couldn't look at that and think, mm, yeah, somebody's seen, seen that and there? drawn faith quite clearly.
0: Hattori Hanzo, um, played by Sonny Chiba. Now, Hattori Hanzo actually was a 16th century samurai, and specifically Hattori Hanzo II uh, was uh, the uh, most famous of his clan. And Sonny Chiba's actually already played him before. In uh, Kage no Gundan, uh, he played Hattori Hanzo, and uh, in the sixth series of Kage no Gundan, which is a 1980s TV show called Shadow Warriors... Called Shinkage no Gandan, or New Shadow Warriors, uh, he played Hattori Hanzo II. So it's, it's clearly something that uh, Tarantino's gone right, we want you again. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a fantastic, measured, solemn performance, and when he writes Bill on the window, it's like he does calligraphy all day long on Windows. Once again, uh, there's not one person in Kill Bill who's not absolutely perfectly cast and absolutely perfectly directed towards what Tarantino wants to do. Ultimately, everyone in Tarantino movies talks like Quentin Tarantino imagines people to talk, which is not the least bit realistic, but it's so... It's like you could chew the dialogue, you could sit there munching on it. It's got this kind of tangibility and and texture to it that makes you just want to feast on tarantino films that's why we, every time you put one in it's like we're in for a treat except death proof where it's rancid you like a samurai sword i like a baseball
1: yeah there's several things that i get about this uh, scene with hansa when beatrix goes to see him and talks to him about making her a sword and although bill is not in the scene himself his essence and his character obviously Infuse all of their conversation, that's what they're talking about. Hanzo says he hasn't made a sword in 28 years because he made a vow not to make something that kills people. Now, my interpretation of of the way that they talk about Bill and his response when she tells him that Bill is the person that she wants to kill with this sword, and that's what makes him agree to do it for her, he clearly feels some responsibility for the things that Bill has done. Bill has clearly done some extremely horrendously bad things as far as the Samurai Code goes, because, again, as we've already talked about, this sense of you are the sword, not the hand, in the Samurai Code, which allows you to do what you are instructed to do by your master without feeling remorse for it. Bill seems to have done something against that code. He's betrayed something that Hanzo believes in very, very deeply, obviously, to the point where he fits now feels the responsibility for his sword being used to do bill's work um and that has been has resonated with him so deeply that it stopped him doing what he was born to do which is to make these swords for 28 years um i did wonder whether it might tie in with the idea of what he did for the um uh, the yakuza boss and and Obviously, killing Oren's parents may have been a part of that, but, I mean, obviously the film never goes into that much detail um, with regard to how much that has to do with it. But he recognises that for whatever he's done, up to and including what he did to Beatrix, Bill needs to die, and he is willing to break an oath he swore uh, in order to enable that to be fulfilled. Uh,
3: What other Japanese do you know?
5: Oh, let's see, Um, arigato?
3: Arigato!
1: Good.
5: Um, uh, I already said domo, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Konnichiwa? Ah, 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 ah. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa, please repeat.
5: Konnichiwa.
3: Perfect. Good, good, good. <laughs> you said Japanese word lot like you're Japanese. Oh, now
2: you're making fun of me.
3: No, 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 no. Say business. Pronunciation very good. You say "arigato." Like we say "arigato."
6: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Well,
5: thank you. I mean,
3: "arigato." Mm -hmm. You should
6: learn Japanese.
3: Very easy.
5: (laughs) No kidding. I heard it was kind
3: of hard. Most difficult, but you have a Japanese tank. (laughs) Okay. Okay machido sama what brings you to Okinawa?
5: I came to see a man.
3: Oh, yeah. You have a friend living in Okinawa? Not quite. Not friend? I never met him. Never? Who is he?
6: May I ask?
5: Hattori
3: Haturians
5: only
3: of You must
5: have
4: a big rat. You need a
0: haturians of steel.
5: Huge.
0: A brief word on the soundtrack here. I this is one of the best soundtracks ever created. It's, it's as eclectic as it gets. Tarantino's just basically cribbed music from all over from films he already likes, but are f- so obscure that no one would have heard them before. And there's so much packed into the two, two soundtracks you can get, but there's so much that's not. And I advise you to check out YouTube for the the bits of music that are not, because there's some cracking fantastic bits of western score and there's some sort of samurai movie type music in there and the sword music that turns up at this at this point when uh the bride's looking at the swords is absolutely heartbreaking and it should be available on cd and yet it's not so um so here it is film kicks into gear and you get the whole second act because this is a film of two acts. The first act is uh, is the bride waking up. The second act is the fight at the House of Blue Leaves. Not the traditional um, three-part structure of uh, of, of theatre, but uh, this is not the traditional film. So at, at this point, we actually have less to talk about because it's just a, se- a series of really flashy, stylish sequences where the bride goes to Japan and basically fucks up 88, uh, about 90 people. Uh, again, it's, it's one of the greatest fights uh, ever filmed. The, the uh, Yen Wuping style stunt team perform admirably most crucially Uma Thurman sells herself as a lady-shaped death machine that a lesser actress would really have had trouble with you believe that every single one of those blows she lands could actually decimate these guys
1: yeah and there's something else about her performance as well which I find absolutely fascinating and I don't quite know how she managed to pull this off but there's something in her expression in certain situations and in this scene, particularly the bit where she talks to GoGo go uh, before the fight starts. And you look at... It's almost the lines on her face and the look in her eyes and you not only believe her completely as a killer, you believe her completely as a mother as well. She, She has an almost maternal way of looking at things that her need to get revenge does not wipe out but it informs her need to get revenge
0: Mm. she's not a wild animal she's not just going to immediately attack gogo she does try to assuage so i mean basically she just stands there and let the crazy 88 come to her she doesn't go charging in and, and hack them to pieces like maybe wolverine would do effectively they all bring it upon themselves there is one moment where she becomes the merciful bride in fact where she has decimated most of the Crazy Eighty Eight, and she ends up with one young swordsman, whom she s- breaks his sword off to a stump, and then spanks him with her sword, and says, "This
6: is what you get for fucking you Go home to your mother!"
0: And he runs away, and that. It's just a a kind of of funny little throwaway thing, but if every single person she'd been up against had been that pathetic, she would not have gone on a roaring rampage of revenge. It's difficult to say self-defense because she started it, but uh, ultimately the people who are not essential to kill, she spares. And she uh, also allows every single one of them who is able to, to crawl away at the end, though they have to leave their limbs because she claims them. to mention the five six seven eights uh, the ones who sang those iconic songs woohoo i walk like jane mansfield which wasn't even in the damn film and i'm blue which i, b- I believe they uh, you know they were caught by tarantino when he was in uh, japan and and they they underwent a uh, you know a fairly prolific time in their career shortly after this film So and uh, I, I heard that damn music in adverts for tango and football and all kinds of shit you also get the yellow suit at this point which is uh kind of an adaptation of bruce lee's jumpsuit in game of death it's about as iconic as it gets you dress someone up in that right now you dress the the guys in uh little big planet there's like a sort of an afro suit you get at some point when you get to the metropolis area and if you just take off the afro and give that uh sack girl a blonde wig you got yourself a bride right there, because it's a yellow suit. You can it c- you can make it yellow. There's a certain sensibility that if you put a, ca- a really great character in silhouette, they will still be recognisable. I fully believe that if you put the bride in silhouette, you would recognise her. For all the women who've held swords over the years, that particular iconic silhouette would, would be recognisable to people. Same as Tomb Raider, James Bond, Darth Vader, Chewbacca something that you could just a character that will effectively live on forever and and the yellow suit is absolutely iconic of that even if it's only in the first kill bill movie maybe that's why people didn't like the second one as much it's as shallow as that she wasn't wearing the yellow suit
1: with the suit and the, you know, you've got the motorbike in yellow and her helmet is yellow and her shoes are yellow and she's got her hand sword which has been inlaid with, I think the cord gold. is yellow um, and she's got gold inlay on it. Um, it it makes her look like a superhero, that is the bottom line she's the bride, she's in this costume um, and what she's doing in taking on these uh, numerous bodyguards, I think it's established there aren't actually eighty eight of them. There certainly aren't by the time she's finished with them. You just
0: find sound cool,
1: um, but uh, she, you know, she looks like a superhero. She sells herself as a superhero, and it makes that whole section so uh, stylistic and so amazing to watch. And the pacing is fantastic, and the the way that Tarantino puts the the changing scenes together. I mean, you get so many different images. And so many different ways of selling those images, particularly when you get to the part where it all switches to black and
0: white, which I think is uh, actually strengthens the film. Uh, there's, uh, I think Tony actually has the Japanese cut where he didn't go black and white. I don't actually know the exact story on this one. I have heard that he cut it to black and white to escape an NC-17 from the American uh, MPAA. But I've also heard that previous releases of Samurai films back in the 70s and 80s, when they were released, uh, you know, late 70s, obviously when with the advent of video. Uh, had to have certain sequences put in black and white to actually... To, to allow them to be released, just so that they could get an R rating on home video. Whereas in Japan, they were released, uh, in, you know, intact with no black and white sequences. So, there is a possibility he cut this to black and white in the West because people would immediately, if they were familiar with this kind of scenario, go, oh, it's like one of those bits. Whereas in Japan, they wouldn't have got the joke. But either way, stylistically, it works. And I... I the way that it flicks back from black and white to it... I mean, ultimately, it doesn't look... It's not framed or paced like a Kurosawa film, but it's certainly not far off in terms of, of intensity. So uh you know, I, I, I cherish the black and white bit. I, I, I adore seeing the bride carve up the guys, and I don't necessarily think that uh, seeing... Sp- it's... I've seen it now so many times that seeing it with, with, with the colour reinstated would be enough of a chance. You know how it's like, if you listen to, like, The Who sing a quick one More he's away, the Live at Leeds version, enough times for ten years, and then you finally hear the album version and you go, no, that's not as good. It's the same, for me.
1: One thing I do find interesting about um, what I have heard other people saying about Tarantino films and... and- Kill Bill is a particular example of this is the fact that he, he samples other people's work he, he's very much in with his, his homage of the styles that he admires and the, uh, the films that have inspired him and I've heard that said as a criticism you know, does he really have his own way of doing things or does he just copy other people? And then you get into that argument of where do you draw the line between copying and homage? But the bottom line is, he's so damn good at it, that's okay,
0: we'll let it slide. Indeed. He's an aut- uh, he's an auteur, like I said. What, well, if, if you manage to bring back from the next five years whatever he's gonna put out, And just put it in front of someone, didn't show them that a film by Quentin Tarantino, they go, This is Tarantino. Almost immediately. Immediately. Django! Django, have you always And it's because he's actually made a habit of taking and borrowing from so many other different places. And he does it so well that no one else can really come close. There are many, many Tarantino imitators. They were a bit more prolific in the mid to late 90s. But in the same way, as there, there have been so many Matrix imitators. It's just... It cheeses me off these days whenever I see, oh, look, he jumps through the window and glass shatters everywhere and he's firing bullets, and this is in slow motion. Yes, I know, it was in The Matrix about ten years ago. What, have you got anything new? Or are you just aping something from before? There's a certain love and skill that has to come across if you're doing a Marge. Otherwise, it's just copycatting. It's a very fine line to tread, but he treads it very well. (coughs) And you also get Battle Without or Humanity, which in the film is fantastic, but in the trailer is one of the most iconic pieces of music in cinema. And it's been used in several other films, including Transformers and Team America World Police, but whenever you hear it, you think of Kill Bill. It's important to note that Johnny Moe here, the bald guy in the Kato mask, is uh, played by Gordon Liu, who's uh, not necessarily massive uh, martial arts star, uh, possibly more famous in the East, but um, he also plays Pai Mei in the second one. <laughs> And then you got the Oren fight, which is very much based on a film called Lady Snowblood. There's even a piece of music, uh, The Flower of Carnage, which is actually from it, by uh, Meiko Kaji. It's, again, massively iconic. She walks out of the uh, House of Blue Leaves, where when she walked in, it was night time in a relatively dry, what appears to be a relatively, I don't know, autumn, spring, summer, it doesn't matter. Uh, and then she walks out into the garden, and it's clearly winter, and it's clearly snowing, and we've gone to fantasy land but then it's been fantasy land the whole way through so we buy it and it's just a really great excuse for some iconographic two ladies on a white background fighting in slow fits and starts where they sort of meet clash part meet clash part and then eventually poor Oren has her head bisected
1: i love this scene i absolutely love this scene i think it's Beautiful. It's the the music is perfect. It all fits together so so well. And as a an almost climax to the first film, it just it works so brilliantly. For me, the way the bride's one on one fights so far um, have been with women, and the way those fights have been set up, and the way the characters have been set up. There's something about her fight with Oren that, in part, I always thought was to do with Oren being maybe closer to her than the others. There's an emotion there that uh, she seems to have got rid of.
0: They share um, private jokes, with silly rabbit tricks are for kids. Exactly. They, they've clearly been good friends before, in a way that her and Elle definitely haven't.
1: And even uh, Vanita as well. Mm. She, doesn't have, she doesn't seem to have that level of uh, camaraderie with her. Possibly it's the fact that both of them have uh, a similar interest in samurai swords. You know, they, they both seem to be of that school together. But also, and it just occurred to me the last time we saw this, this is her first one. This is the first one she takes down. She goes for Oren first, whether that's because, as she said, she was the easiest to find or whether that's because she's the one who means the most to her and therefore she wanted to go after her.
0: I think it's a tactical reason. If uh, you know that one of the people you're after has a private army, you go for them first because you don't want that private army to be on guard. But you're right, if she kills the one she cares about the most first, it makes the other ones all the more easy. I haven't actually talked about Oren as a character. I I really like her. I mean, she's psychotic, clearly, but um, she has the way she deals with boss Tanaka.
3: As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. If you're
2: unconvinced a particular plan of action I've decided is the
3: wisest, tell me so.
2: But allow me to convince you, and I promise you right here and now... No subject will ever be taboo. Except, of course, the subject that was just under discussion. The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect
3: your fucking head. Just like this fucker here. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time!
0: I didn't think so. It's uncompromising. Uh, she has clearly a pride in her roots, and um, she's clearly grown up in hardship and, and is not going to let racist old men effectively tell her where she, where her place is.
1: Also, um, she clearly adheres to the theory of walk softly and carry a fucking
0: sharp sword. So, yeah, I'm kind of sad to see her go. I think the dignity and the majesty of this particular fight maybe left people thinking that they wanted something like that with her versus Bill at the end, but ultimately, because we've had it, we don't necessarily need it to be mirrored, and we'll come to that soon.
1: Also, in Oren's end, when she apologises to the bride for ridiculing her... Um, there's an expression on her face that says she's apologising for more than that that deep down I suppose you don't really get the full force of this until you move into volume 2 but I think they all feel very very bad about what they did to Beatrix they all feel that not only have they wronged somebody that they cared about but again they've all betrayed something that they believe in very strongly I don't quite know how that all fits together but in each of them when she takes them out, there's an expression of, I deserve this. Bud even says it outright in Volume 2. I'd say with the possible exception of Elle, who maintains her bitter pride to the end.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, does not go down gracefully, and certainly does not uh, say, well, I deserve that one.
1: No, but we'll come to that later. But other than that, they all either openly admit, or it's there in their face, that they feel that Beatrix has the right to do what she's doing and ultimately I think that's part of the reason why she's able to kill them because ultimately they lay down
0: and then there's Sophie who she seems to have, she seems to despise Sophie we flash to um, how Sophie was acting during the actual massacre and uh, she's talking on the phone and laughing and there's a bitterness and hatred there in the bride that that she just stood by and, and was actually completely unaffected by this scenario and It could be argued that Sophie gets it the worst. She gets her arm cut off and then possibly mutilated even further by the bride when she's torturing her for information on Bill. She even refers to her as a former protege of Bill's, which might imply that she couldn't cut it in the Deadly Viper assassination squad and just went off to do admin, effectively, for Orin. So uh, I think this is, again, going to come back and bite her in the ass because she left someone alive and someone who would be able to harbour a deep resentment about the bride and someone who knows a hell of a lot. And I think that uh, that's another loose end which may end up getting tied up in the future.
1: Interesting that you mention about the uh, the possible further mutilation, actually, because the way I've always seen that, because obviously she cuts off Sophie's arm when she first goes into the House of Blue Leaves. That's one of the first things she does to get O'Ren's attention. When she rolls Sophie down the hill to the hospital, all she appears to be missing is that arm, it's not blindingly obvious that she's removed anything else. And I I will be honest with you, I think Sophie folded
0: extremely quickly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the bride had to cut anything else off. I think she just went, there you go, that's everything you want to know.
0: So actually that, that scene when the bride seems massively cold and massively chilling at the end, it could just have effectively been a front to get Sophie to squeal, which she did obligingly within seconds. But that bit where he's talking to Sophie and he's laying his hands on her and she's terrified, every movie villain cliche comes repeating back to you and you're like, oh, God, he's going to kill Sophie now. And yet, rather than kill her, he shows her compassion. It's really refreshing to see a, a villain not killing their henchmen because they failed them. He's more than aware of what B can do. And so he doesn't consider that to be something that, say, Sophie could surmount. So that already stands you in uneasy stead uh, in terms of the ambiguity of Bill and B's final showdown. It's a conflict of two people with very flawed and conflicting emotions about each other. It takes all of that uh, fierce hatred and muddles it, which is one of the, the most beautiful aspects about this film. Sophie. Sophie.
4: Nice Sophie. I'm so sorry.
3: Please, please forgive
6: my betrayal. No more of that. But still...
4: But still nothing. Except my aching heart at what she's done to my beautiful and brilliant Sophie. If you had to guess why she left you alive, what would
6: be
3: your guess? guessing won't be necessary she informed me she said i could keep my wicked life for two reasons
5: as i said before i've allowed you to keep your wicked life for two reasons and the second reason is so you can tell him in person everything that happened here tonight I want him to witness the extent of my mercy by witnessing your deformed body. I want you to tell him all the information you just told me. I want him to know what I know. I want him to know. I want him to know. And I want them all to know. They'll all soon be
6: as dead as the
0: Let me tell you folks, oh, there aren't many other ways that you can keep people champing at the bit than having Bill say,
4: One more thing, Sophie. Is she aware her
0: daughter is still alive?
4: in a movie right it's about as cinematic a thing as you can do i mean it really you're really doing what movies do better than any other art form you know i mean it really works in this visceral emotional cinematic you know way that's just like special i mean it's just really really special and when you do it right and you hit it right then the effect is you can never really hear that song again without kind of thinking about that image from the movie Personally, I don't know if Jerry Rafferty necessarily appreciated the connotations that I brought to Stuck in the Middle with you. There's a good chance he did
0: So, while the first film started like a Shaw Brothers presentation, the second one is most definitely a Western. Straight away from the off, you got some Enino Morricone. And it's in black and white. Kind of, not simply a plot recap, but a reaffirmation of goals by the bride.
5: Looked dead, didn't I? Well, I wasn't. But it wasn't from lack of trying, I can tell you that. Actually, Bill's last bullet put me in a coma. A coma I was to lie in for four years. When I woke up... I went on with the movie advertisements referred to as a roaring rampage of revenge. I roared, and I rampaged, and I got bloody satisfaction. I've killed a hell of a lot of people to get to this point,
6: but I have only one more.
5: The last one, the one I'm driving to right now, the only one left. And when I arrive at my destination, I am going to kill Bill.
0: So, the massacre at Two Pines, El Paso. Before, you knew roughly what happened, and in this film, you know why it happened. And I'm going to posit something that is not going to be a very popular theory, but I think Kill Bill Volume 2 is better than Volume 1. Oh, oh, you disagree? Oh, well, allow me to retort. This whole episode is going to be me trying to convince you of that. Sharon, do you believe the same thing? Or
1: I really difficult for me to say I, I do really love volume 2 and if I was forced to make a choice with my arm twisted behind my back um, then I would probably say yeah if I've got to watch one or the other I would probably rather sit down and watch volume 2 it's emotionally deeper there's more character investigation um, stylistically it may not be as appealing which I think is why a lot of people prefer the first one but I think there is more to the second volume however I also believe that the two are completely inseparable. I wouldn't want to sit down and watch one without the other, quite frankly. Without volume It'd one... It'd be
0: like watching just it, the two towers.
1: Yeah, yeah, to a point. But, I mean, even more so than with Lord of the Rings, without volume one of Kill Bill, you don't have the setup, you don't have the motivations, you don't have the initial characterization, and you miss the fantastic fights that she has in that film. If you don't see the second one... You lose the resolution. You lose the uh, the deepening of the emotional impact. So I, I really don't see them as separable, to be quite honest.
0: Mm. So effectively, it is a four-hour. Can't they just? The onus is on you as to how you watch it. Now, the most important thing that happens at the beginning here is that we finally get to see Bill. Now he actually did show up in the trailer before it was going to be cut into two films, but he was kept very much obscured in the first film. It's like this this thing that people weren't allowed to see him, even though we all know what David Carradine looks like. And when he finally shows up... There's a tension in this scene which is only paralleled in um, *Inglorious Bastards* throughout the whole film. Which it, it's like he he got this whole the tension of this scene and the scene at the end and just made a whole movie out of them because *Inglorious Bastards* is just a series of tense scenes where you're not sure what's going to happen but you're fairly sure it's going to be horrible. And th- there's an occasional scene where nothing happens at the end and you go, Ugh. but this is the f- like. Tarantino is is, is very accl- accustomed to doing this kind of thing. He's, he did it in Pulp Fiction. He's done it in Reservoir Dogs. He's been doing it since he he, he started. But at this point, he actually achieves a mastery of it because we're really invested in these characters. And also, significantly, you know something bad's going to go down. You know exactly what's going to happen. And you're watching it. And you're watching Bill talking and lying and saying, I promise to be sweet, when all the time he's thinking, I am going to kill you. And everyone else here. B is so afraid in this whole scene because obviously she has a child inside her at this point, and she's just terrified because Bill has her worst nightmare has occurred. Bill's turned up, and then that rapidly spirals downhill and becomes worse than her worst nightmare because she didn't believe that he could do this. It's loaded, and it's just one of several loaded scenes in this film that do, to me, make it better than one.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the whole interaction between uh, Beatrix and Bill at this point... And, first of all, he didn't say he promised to be sweet. He, he said, said he'd, he'd do, do his, his best. best, which is hardly a promise. But, yeah, the, you feel uh, B's terror at this point, and And there's, there's loads of little moments where you read what she's planning to do there's a second where the camera zooms in on her feet and she shifts her stance and she's getting ready for flight basically she's getting ready to run um
0: would you run from bill pregnant
1: i think she tried she tried to, in in a bigger sense she tried to get away from him hmm. i think oh no i mean physically
0: while pregnant yeah. when everyone else that you care about is back there i think she would have actually tried to defend herself and them
1: well, she's getting ready to move one way or another. She, she's the, that zooming in on her feet. She's shifting her position and getting ready to do something. But there's also um, the second when she says to him, have you seen Tommy? That's almost as if to say if he doesn't know what Tommy looks like, if he doesn't know what those, who those people in there are, she'd almost be prepared to run away, to draw him away from them. You think? <laughs> yeah but when he says he's seen him then she gives up on that because like she knows his hair. yeah once she knows he, he knows these people and he can uh, find them and if he kills her first he will go in and take them out afterwards then her her shoulders drop and she goes back into the conversation it's very very subtle it could be interpreted in many many ways
0: there's so much going on in this scene mm-hmm. absolutely it's a brilliant way to start a movie especially since you know the outcome you know what's going to happen And yet, the whole time, you're like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Okay, so let's move on from that, because we've got so much to cover. The important thing about this film is, uh, it can be summed up in a single line that Bill says at the end, Uh, it's that he knew what would happen when he shot Mami, he's saying this to Bibi, but what he didn't know was what would happen to him. And it's not just him, everyone was affected by the death of the bride. Bud specifically appears to have put himself into exile Exiled himself to the Badlands He's got a shitty, shitty job He's living like a bum To the point where Bill comes out to warn him And he says One of my favourite speeches in in the whole film That woman
4: Deserves her revenge
6: And We deserve to die (laughs) but <laughs> then again the so does so I guess we'll just see
0: oh. which just says so much about his character because immediately afterwards he goes to the strip joint to basically lay his dignity down on a, you know on what has become a, a daily basis at this point gets the shit knocked out of him by this asshole of a boss, and then comes home. It's like he's punishing himself. He's flagellating, living out this existence. He pawned a priceless... well, he says he did just to fuck with Bill. He could have so much more at this point. He has been paid huge amounts. His Everyone he knows is horrendously rich and well-off. He's got connections. He doesn't have to live like this. And yet, he does. And still, when Beatrix comes to meet him... He shoots her in the tits with rock salt and buries her alive. Now, what the fuck is that about? That is a man so contradictory in nature. That is a man who believes he should be punished, and yet... Yeah, he's not going to just go down easy either way. He's not just going to let himself be killed. There is more going on in, in Bud than almost anyone else in this whole film. Maybe Bill and the Bride...
1: It's almost like he has these ideals. He's, as much as the rest of them, he's tried to live by some sort of uh, samurai or warrior code. But ultimately, it's the animal in him that wins. Not necessarily wins out, but is still very, very strong. His animal instincts, his survival instincts, his will-do-anything-for-food instincts are still there and still very, very key to the way that he behaves. Um, But I would also say that, that... Setting Bud up that way presents a very interesting uh, split between the way that uh, Tarantino often presents his uh, key male characters and the way he presents his key female characters. Because the, they're, they're all varied, and I'm not going to say that, that he stereotypes, which I know some people have uh, accused him of in the past, but he the way he sets his characters up, the men... They can be heroic. They can be villainous. They can be uh, strong. They can be weak and cheating.
0: But usually, they're not just straightforward heroic. There's no straightforward Boy Scouts. In no, 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 no. I mean, I'm
1: I'm talking about sort of the, the elements of the way that they behave can can be that way. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, um, with the possible exception of, of Bill, and um, and I'm sure there are a few others. Um, I think the Jew Hunter in Inglorious Bastards. The men don't really seem to think all that much. They don't really seem to plan all that much. They They're act not on it. No, they act on instinct. They act. If they if they have a level of cunning, it's kind of an animal cunning. They don't. Um, they don't necessarily think things through to the end. You look at his female characters, the strong female characters that he portrays: Jackie Brown, the Bride, Oren um Shosanna in uh, *Inglorious Bastards they plan and they plot and they uh they do what is necessary to do in all circumstances to get the outcome that they want and that is absolutely fascinating to me that is a uh, a strength in female characters that so rarely gets an outing in cinema and that's one of the reasons why I think Tarantino needs to be given time by more um, by more women by more female cinema enthusiasts particularly um, the the way that he sets up strong female characters yes they're stylized and yes they are archetypal I would say rather than stereotypical sometimes um, but that still makes them very very worthy of time and they're they're stronger and more multi layered um, than most of the tits and nurse uh,
0: you're mad Madison Ciphers, here.
1: yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, the,
0: That's what I call a kicking butt. Yeah. You go, girl. Ugh.
1: But yeah, the, the, the female ciphers that are so typical to your average film, they just aren't worthy of screen time, and his characters so are.
0: Now, when Bud buries her alive, some might call that overly harsh. Some might, well, for me, it's one of my worst fears. And when it actually happened in the cinema, and everything went black, I couldn't breathe. I was like, hum, hum, ha, 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 because I'm somewhat claustrophobic. So the, uh, the just the nature of it, really. It was terrifying, but at the same time he has the opportunity to mace her eyes out, and doesn't because he respects her. I'd actually call his response, considering what everyone else was trying to do to her kind of proportional, kind. She was out there to kill him, and in response he left her alive but imprisoned, in a way that would possibly terrify the living shit out of her before she suffocated to death. But at the same time it's in the same way as Bill allowed young Oren to live. It's like saying, get out of that one.
1: Yeah, uh, he gives her a chance.
0: Um, and a torch.
1: Yeah, he, he gives her the opportunity to um, to overcome the obstacle that's been placed in her way and come after him again. And that ties in very well with his speech about her deserving her revenge um, and them deserving to die. It's almost like he doesn't feel he has the right to take that away from her completely.
0: We're going to have to go away from the Buried Alive bit because it immediately then cuts to the legend of Pai Mei. Once upon a time
4: in China, some believe around the year three, head priest of the White Lotus Clan, Pai Mei was walking down a road contemplating whatever it is that a man of Pai Mei's infinite powers would contemplate, which is another way of saying who knows. When a Shaolin monk appeared on the road, direction. As the monk and the priest crossed paths, Pai Mei, in a practically unfathomable display of generosity, gave the monk the slightest of nods. The nod was not returned. Now, was it the intention of the Shaolin monk to insult Pai Mei? Or did he just fail to see the generous social gesture? The motives of the monk remain unknown. What is known were the consequences. The next morning, Pai Mei appeared at the Shaolin Temple and demanded of the temple's head abbot that he offer Pai Mei his neck the insult. The abbot at first tried to console Pai Mei, only to find Pai Mei was inconsolable. So began the massacre of the Shaolin Temple and all 60 of the monks inside at the fists of the White Lotus. And so began the legend of five-point-palm-exploding-heart technique.
5: And what, pray tell, is the five-point-palm-exploding-heart technique?
0: And so then we get to see who taught B and Bill how to fight. And my god, Mei is just like the obvious white-haired, white-eyebrowed, mad, ha- angry, cruel, old racist man. But he's like an evil Yoda... And not in the way that the Emperor was like, No! No! But just the same kind of power, the same kind of self-restraint, but he's also prideful and wicked and vengeful and spiteful and nasty. Pai Mei is based on a uh, real-life Shaolin monk named Buck Mei, uh, and it's never really gone into as to whether he's supposed to be the same guy. But, uh, basically, again, played by Gordon Liu, who played Johnny Moe. It's dealing with another Eastern historical figure, and not really saying, it's not them. Or it is them. It's, it's like Chantina can just go, oh yeah. It's, it's like putting Robin Hood in your film, and just going, oh yeah, this is Robin Hood. It's, I mean, effectively the only one that they missed out is, uh, Jubei Yagyu. So then Pai teaches her how to put her fist through a plank, which comes in massively useful immediately afterwards.
1: I really love this section. I, I love the way that um, he sets up his teaching of her and the beginning part where he breaks her down and where he does all the moves designed to make her realise that she's completely helpless and she needs to start from scratch.
0: That the only thing you know is that you know nothing. Absolutely.
1: Cruel um, Yoda. Yes. The, the line that makes me smile every time is like all Yankee women, all you know how to do is order in restaurants and spend a man's money. (laughs) The fact that he has that that contempt for women, which which Bill has already pointed out that he has, and yet
0: he he takes her on. He hates Caucasians, he despises Americans, and has nothing but contempt for women.
1: Indeed. But he takes her on, he trains her, he sees that there is potential in her, and that there is steel in her soul that he can temper, and that he is willing to do that again i think gives a, a a layer to her character that is shown through the way other people see her and the way other people react to her
0: So then B uses his training to. Again, this is her being massively resourceful in a way that set situations where most people would crumble and become a blubbering heap. She uh, uses the torch to find her way down to her boot, where she pulls off her boot, pulls out a, isn't it a cutthroat razor. Uh, rather similar to Mr. Blonde's cutthroat razor from Ra- Reservoir Dogs, I might add, which he. Did he also keep that in his boot? Eh, either way. Cuts through the ropes and then punches through the boards in a way that. When you're watching it to begin with, you're like, how is she going to get out of this? And when she finally gets out, you go, of course.
1: There was actually um, the way that uh, Slumdog Millionaire was set up reminded me of this and the the way Tarantino illustrated this. It's like, "Okay, here's the situation. How are you going to get out of this situation? Here's the thing you learned ten years ago that's going to get you out of this situation.
0: (laughs) So then she literally rises from the grave a second time comes back from the dead, walks across the desert in a very, uh, western kind of inina County kind of way and, uh, comes across L killing Bud in the same way as we, w- we mentioned before. Slithering into his home, killing him with a snake and then leaving blaming someone else.
2: Oh. I'm sorry, Bud. That was rude of me, wasn't it? Bud, I'd like to introduce my friend, the Black Mamba. Black mamba? This is Bud. You know, before I picked that little fella up, I looked him up on the Internet. Fascinating creature, the black mamba. Listen to this. In Africa, the saying goes, in the bush, an elephant can kill you, a leopard can kill you, and a black mamba can kill you. But only with the mamba. And this has been true in africa since the dawn of time is death sure hence its handle death
5: incarnate pretty cool huh
2: its neurotoxic venom is one of nature's most effective poisons acting on the nervous system causing paralysis the venom of a black mamba can kill a human being in four hours if say bitten on the ankle or the thumb however a bite to the face or torso can bring death from paralysis within 20 minutes. Now, you should listen to this, because this concerns you. The amount of venom that can be delivered from a single bite can be gargantuan. You know, I've always liked that word, gargantuan. I so rarely have an opportunity to use it in a sentence. If not treated quickly with anti-venom, 10 to 15 milligrams can be fatal to human beings. However... The Black Mamba can deliver as much as 100 to 400 milligrams of venom from a single bite. Now, in these last agonizing minutes of life you have left, let me answer that question you asked earlier more thoroughly. Right at this moment, the biggest R I feel is regret. Regret that maybe the greatest warrior I have ever met met her end at the hands of a bushwhacking, scrub, elky piece of shit like you.
3: <sighs> that woman deserved better.
0: She's a sneaky, hateful bitch. And. Then we find out she did exactly the same thing to Pai Mei. This culmination of hatred between these two women explodes into yet another fantastic close-range fight, which, again, doesn't sexy it up. These are two women, but they are absolutely out to kill one another.
1: Absolutely. And full props to Daryl Hannah for this. I mean, this was so out of type for her and, mm. and she obviously loves every minute of this it this is the
0: mermaid from Splash
1: yeah the, the, the close up on her face when she's doing the, the explaining to Beatrix that she killed, killed May that's right yeah it's hilarious and it's so well delivered she does a fantastic job she's absolutely amazing and the fact that she's willing to get down and get her hands dirty and act in a way that I have never seen her act before it was just superb
0: And when she pulls her eye out, that is yet another loose end. Tarantino even alludes to it at the end by sticking a great big question mark over whether Elle's dead or not. She's not dead. Elle is coming back, blind and absolutely furious. So then Beatrix, and we've only just found out her name is Beatrix, because uh, there's that little bit where uh, L says, you'll be standing on the grave of Beatrix Kiddo. And significantly, Bill's been calling her Kiddo since the very beginning. We always knew her name. We just didn't catch it. And uh, ev- Even now, when you're watching it again and they go, Beatrix asked you a question, and there's a little beep over the actual word, it doesn't date. It doesn't make me go, oh, I know her name. It's like, oh, yes, there was that game about her name not being mentioned. And there's like a little callback to that time when you didn't know. So Beatrix goes to see Esteban. This is a totally superfluous scene. She didn't need to go and do this. Um, basically all that you get from it is where Bill is you could have found that out from a notebook in Elle's pocket or something however it's actually kind of important because A you get to find out about how Bill was raised by a pimp and a little bit about Bill when he was young but B you get to see that Esteban when girls cross him cuts their faces and ruins them and so she, you see Clarita just this waitress slash hooker With a a completely ruined face. And then you get immediately cut to the bride's beautiful, unspoiled, unmarked face. I mean, you don't really zoom in on the metal plate in her head. Uh, But you maybe think to yourself, maybe Bill could have done worse. Actually, shooting her in the head wasn't all that bad.
1: I think as well the fact that um, this scene sets up um, some very important considerations for Bill as a character. He, The environment in which he was raised, the fact that B says... Esteban was one of his first father figures. He's modelled his family on this lifestyle of one man in charge of all these women controlling what they do, taking a cut of their income. Um, that's what he set up for himself. That's what the uh, the Deadly Vipers are, effectively. He is a pimp. Assassin pin. whores. And exactly. He hires them out. Um, they do what he wants them to do. And B alludes to this later on when she says, I was your woman. I killed for you. Um, this sense of, of a man in control. And it seems an exaggeration to say it, but it's almost as if, as a decent, rational human being you want to see him taken down for that you want to to um you, you completely understand that she would be desperate to get her child particularly and very specifically her daughter away from that lifestyle because she'd be terrified that as soon as she was old enough bill would want her trained bill would want her out there whoring herself as well and Beatrix wants to get her daughter away from that and I, I you, you get completely behind that at that
0: point if you weren't before but, see, you don't even realise that that's her motivation because at this point she's still out to kill Bill because he took her child from her. And in the second she goes through that door and sees that Bibi is still alive and a beautiful four-year-old girl who's intelligent and fun and just everything she's ever wanted in a child and she's there and alive, it sucks everything out of her that had been driving her forward and leaves her with no forward momentum. She's completely thrown at that point, Bill could have just walked over to her and performed a coup de grace with a rock, but he doesn't, because Bill wants her back at that stage.
1: And that's a very interesting observation, because I disagree with you completely and wholly on that
0: point. You do. Mommy.
1: But
4: little did Quick draw Kiddo know that little BB was only playing possum due to the fact that she was impervious to bullets.
2: I'm
3: previous to bullets, mommy.
4: Hey, get back down there. You're oh, yeah. playing possum. So as the smirking killer advanced on what she thought was a bullet ridden corpse, that's when little BB fired.
6: Bang bang
4: You're dead, Mommy. I. Oh
6: Bebe Oh Bebe
1: oh. I should have known You are the best. There's, There is a brief moment where she's totally thrown And she doesn't know how to respond. But when she gets to the point where she goes over and kneels down and hugs BB, the way she looks at Bill over her shoulder, the hatred, the seething resentment in her eyes. How dare you do this? How dare you keep her? How dare you raise her? How dare you put your values into her? And... Then when she pulls back and goes, click, straight back into being mummy and, um, you know, only allowing Bibi to see the, the softer side of her. Again, a fascinating delivery from Uma Thurman and, and just done so, so well. I have great, great respect for the way she performed this character uh, and that's part of it for me.
0: We'll come back to that because there was a bit of the end as well which kind of plays into this. So the bride as a mother then gets to see... In this weird kind of domestic situation where Bill's making BB a sandwich and talking about uh, uh, her killing a fish in her first brush with intentional caused murder of a fish. And the bride starts to notice that BB is becoming, s- what well, has become already sad about killing, but certainly not unaccustomed to it to a degree where it wouldn't take much from Bill to start teaching her that maybe killing is right and especially if someone pays you for it. So then, when they watch Shogun Assassin, and it's, it's fascinating the way that Bill goes, No, 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 not Shogun Assassin. That's too long. Not that's the most inappropriate fucking film to show a four year old. I love that, that's brilliant. Which is why I'm, I now feel that that's enough reason for me to show Lyra Shogun Assassin. I don't know, I'll wait two years. <laughs> okay so then we get to see the bride as a mother and she changes completely because she, before she's just been this torpedo smashing through these these uh, you know all the obstacles in her way to get to this submarine of bill at the end and she doesn't stop what well, she has already stopped but she's rounding herself back up again so when she goes back out after putting Bibi to bed she's fairly certain she's going to kill bill again and She's going to take Bibi away from this, and and that is her plan. Whereas Bill's plan is to get her to confront the truth. And for that, he uses a truth serum, the undisputed truth.
4: Now, when it comes to you and us, I have a few unanswered questions. So, before this tale of bloody revenge reaches its climax, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to tell me the truth. However, therein lies a dilemma. Because when it comes to the subject of me, I believe you are truly and utterly incapable of telling the truth, especially to me. And least of all, to yourself. And when it comes to the subject of me, I am truly and utterly incapable of believing anything you say.
2: How do you suppose we solve this dilemma?
4: Well, it just so happens I have a solution.
0: Ah! which makes this another absolutely fascinating absolutely key scene of tension and dialogue now everyone out there who was expecting this to mirror the first one and just have fight after fight after she's fought 88 guys how much bigger can you get if she fought bill with swords or it was this big long elaborate sword fight how is that better what were people who saw one wanting from two that it didn't deliver Because I got so much more than I was expecting.
1: Mm, This scene between her and Bill, it's it's all about the emotional battle between them, ultimately. He beats her down with the truth. He gets her to look at her, her motivations and admit them to herself. And the expression on her face tells you that she's fighting against this. She doesn't want to admit this. When he gets her to confess, no, she didn't think that she would work in that life. Um in that, you know, working in the record store. It's something
0: she's been clinging to, her entire vengeance spree. She's been thinking, I could have made it work, it could have worked, I I was going to be fine, and Bill took it all away. And Bill says, no, admit it, it wasn't going to work, and she has to.
1: Although, every time I see that scene, I always want to call him on his little Superman story, because his argument that Superman was born Superman... No, he wasn't. He was born Kal-El. It's, yeah, it's he wasn't not super on
0: Krypton. Exactly. He's only super because of the world that he gets put into.
1: Yeah. I mean, it still works, because ultimately, you know, B was not born a killer. She became a killer through the training that she received and, and developed that later in life. And I understand that not everybody is going to know that Superman is Kal-El, but, you know, for the nerds among us, it just makes me go, "Yeah, you're wrong.
0: I like it. It's a pop culture reference, but there's been many better stories recently about superheroes that actually imply that there is there was something of a superhero in them at all times and it just needed a radioactive spider bite or a gamma radiation blast to just just bring that little bit out of them the idea that they're on this track towards doing something extraordinary that can't be uh, avoided there's um there's a Marvel series called Stray Bullets, but written by J. Michael Straczynski, who's also implied that Spider-Man was going to be Spider-Man before he was bitten by the spider anyway, where they change things around in the Marvel Universe. And I think uh, Captain America flies in the Iron Man suit and things like that. And, but the point is that all of the people who are going to be heroes are still heroes. They're just... it's in a different scenario. His point stands. If the bride dressed herself up as a regular person and tried to live a regular life, her old life was going to catch up with her. But her point stands, she had the right to at least try.
1: Indeed, and she wanted to give Bibi that opportunity to grow up in a, uh, a world where she was unaffected by the horror that other people. Oren, it harks back to Oren, having to witness those horrors and what it did to her and the fact that the bride didn't want to kill uh, Copperhead in front of Nikki because she didn't want to expose her to that level of. Um, of violence at that young an age, she understands the impact that that makes, and that's why she not It's not just to expose to her to
0: violence, them. it's, it's expose her to the most traumatic thing that you can witness. What Aside from it? the death of your children, the death of your parents in front of you while you're powerless as a child, probably about the worst thing you could possibly experience. Yeah. It's also significant at this point that Bill, who's been booted throughout the whole film, and they made a very important point of showing his cowboy boots at the beginning, and the heavy steps that he's walking along with is now bootless. He's trying to lure B back to him so that she can be mommy. He's doing softly, softly, catchy monkey. He's walking around on bare feet on the rug.
1: She, on the other hand, is very determined at this stage that there's going to be the showdown here. One of them is going to die. In fact, there's a moment when she's in uh, BB's room um, and bb has gone to sleep. She takes her necklace off and puts it on the photograph of herself and that almost seems to say she doesn't know she's going to get out of this alive. And if she doesn't, she wants Bibi to have something that's from her. Because everything she's had in her life so far has been from Bill. She wants to leave her something to remind her that her mother was there, however briefly.
0: And then we get a really good sequence where uh, the, you see the bride at the point where she was still a stone-cold killer checking to see if she's pregnant or not and then the transformation over the, just the next couple of minutes during her battle with karen kim from the bride as a maiden to the bride as a mother immediately she's suddenly responsible for someone other than herself and uh, that informs upon her motivation for the whole of, of kill bill because the second you take away that responsibility what is left is not what she was before you've got a vacuum And she desperately tries to fill it with blood. So then when you put the child back, she overflows emotionally. It takes her a while to get back to the point where she has to actually just finish this one off. And her new quest becomes not about vengeance, but to take B.B. away from this life and to make sure that it won't come back and get them. So her new reason for killing Bill will not necessarily be for revenge, but for protection. But ultimately, Bill is absolutely right. When it comes down to it, the the reasons for him shooting her in the head are very very simple he's a murdering bastard and there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard and it, it makes the film all this kind of all this tool that's gone on when it comes down to it you don't cross people like bill because you're gonna get fucked up it's it's impossible to avoid and ultimately when it came down to it beatrix was being naive when she thought she could run away without incident She didn't cover her tracks well. If she had wanted to absolutely cement it, she should have killed everyone first.
1: Interesting to say that. I don't know that she necessarily could have. I think it took the years in between. I think at the time she was panicking. She just wanted to run. Um, But
0: But she was naive. She thought that she could.
1: Yeah, but in this this segment, this conversation between them, um, you have what is absolutely one of my favourite lines in the whole thing.
4: I wasn't trying to track you down. I was trying to track down the Fucking assholes I thought killed you. So I find you.
6: And what do I find?
4: Not only are you not dead, you're getting married to some fucking jerk. And you're pregnant. I overreact.
5: you overreacted is that your explanation no,
4: i didn't say i was gonna explain myself i said i was gonna tell you the truth but if that's too cryptic let's get literal i'm a killer i'm a murdering bastard you know that and there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard you experience them. Was my reaction really that surprising?
5: Yes. It was. Could you do what you did? Of course you could. But I never thought
4: you would or could do that to me. I'm really sorry, kiddo, but you thought
1: wrong. It's such a deliberate anticlimax. climax it's, it's Bill admitting that um, he, he let his emotions get the better of him, he did something he didn't necessarily need to do, and if given that time over again, wouldn't necessarily do, it involved the slaughter of many, many people um, who were... Innocents, really who'd, who'd got in the way only because Beatrix had got involved with them um and to have him admit that and have her just completely gobsmacked by the fact that he's admitted that is just so funny and it's a it's a moment of levity that you really need in that that scene I think
0: because it's immediately followed afterwards by the five-point palm exploding heart technique <laughs> And the fight between them is a brief, violent struggle, and absolutely warranted. But when it comes down to it, she sucker-punches him with something that he didn't know that she had. And it's kind of a, anyone not think she was going to do that? Because he mentioned it so pointedly earlier. But um, at the same time, the thing happens that you didn't expect to happen, which is that when Bill than just keeling over or having his head cut off or having his arm cut off or being stabbed in the heart and going, Ugh, ''I die.'' Stops and reflects and wipes the blood off his mouth and talks to her and he knows he's a dead man sitting there. And you, the audience, even though you've been despising this guy the whole way through, even though he's he's got style feel a pang of sadness because he's going
1: and i think this is the five point palm technique there's a reason why Pai Mei doesn't teach it to everybody you need to be the kind of person who uh can bear the weight of not necessarily that power but the fact that if you use it you have got to be very very definite that that you want that person dead and you've got to be very, very definite that you're not going to change your mind about that fact because you've got time to reflect on it. You've, that person then has time to talk to you, give you justification um, for, for what led you to this point. And you've got to be very strong and very resolved to then still want that death to happen and to know you can't take it back, you can't change it. Um, and B does. Because she still has her reason. She still has B.B., and she knows that until Bill is dead, she's never going to be able to get B.B. away from that life. And ultimately, that overrides absolutely everything. Any love she ever felt for Bill, any attachment she ever felt to this lifestyle, she's got to override it all for her need to protect B.B. and take her somewhere where she will be safe
0: from all this. It's not just shooting someone, it's not just cutting off their head, which requires like a passionate action or an emotional response. This is basically a death button, one that you know because you have the skill will work and when David Carradine walks away I think these days it's probably all the more emotional because David Carradine actually did pass away recently and we know he really is coming back and he gets to walk away if not the cowboy hero then the cowboy villain got the resolution and this is the point where the whole film comes together because the bride is crying on the bathroom floor and she says thank you and you realize that basically her entire disposition towards Bill has changed because despite the immediate rage and, and vengeance and resentment that she feels when she goes through the door and then goes to Bibi the fact that he kept took her away and kept her alive and and raised her into this wonderful little child albeit somewhat homicidally disposed. It's something that he didn't have to do at all. And it's given the bride back her life, and more than her life. It's given her something that she could never have had before, and peace of mind with it as well. So it's this is one of the happiest endings to a, a film about vengeance I've ever seen.
1: Again, my interpretation of that scene is, is a little bit different. Um, I Obviously, you've got the fact that when she starts out, she's crying and... She's not sad exactly, but it's, it's grief of a sort. She is mourning Bill. And then gradually that comes round to crying with laughter because she realises that she's now got exactly what she wanted. She's got that life, that opportunity to take Bibi away from it all. Um, the thank you, I previously always interpreted as being just sort of a thank you to the general deity, fate... Um, for for allowing her to pull off what she never truly thought she would Um, but I think that yeah having said that there is an element of thank you to Bill but I think it's a thank you for again like the others accepting that he needed to die and laying down and letting her do it
0: interesting I would like to well, maybe I wouldn't like to find out from Tarantino because I like the fact that it can be uh, interpreted in both ways So we're back in 2014. And one thing we noticed this time, and I'm sure we've noticed it before, um, but we didn't really make a big deal about it then. And this spans across the entirety of Quentin Tarantino's uh, filmography. Feet. This guy is obsessed with feet, specifically women's feet, although some men uh, do get bare feet in their bill at the end. You had some theories on this, so... Just go for it.
1: Well, one thing... I mean,
0: beyond the fact that he's clearly a foot fetishist, which is fine.
1: Well, evidently so. Um, But one thing that particularly struck me is that when women are shown in bare feet, a lot of the time your automatic assumption is that it's demonstrating vulnerability. Um, There's a a particular phrase, barefoot and pregnant, which refers to um, the idea of keeping women in a constant state of impregnation and denying them shoes so that they basically have not got the physical means to run away from a situation which is undesirable to them. Um, The way in which it's presented by Tarantino, particularly in Kill Bill, although there are moments in in other films where the same thing is true, um, Bare Feet seems to uh, suggest... Strength rather than vulnerability there's a um, an idea of possibly because of his interest in martial arts, but the idea that if your feet make a connection with the earth that actually gives you a stronger kicking off point for whatever it is that you're about to do um, and there's a couple of examples that that seem quite minor, but um, when the bride goes into the House of Blue Leaves, the band, the five, six, seven, eights, Mm -hmm. all have bare feet. At that particular moment, they have control of the room. They've got the attention of all of the guests. They are uh, dominating the audio soundtrack in the building at that point. And that seems to me to be uh, more of a a strong position than they're, they're not being overly sexualized. Their clothes aren't particularly... Uh, their skirts aren't particularly short. They're not singing or performing in a, a particularly sexualized way. Um, and there's several moments where uh, B herself has either bare feet or uh, minimal shoes with no socks, and it focuses on her feet shifting as though she's about to spring or run or attack. Or do something which is suggestive of strength rather than vulnerability.
0: Does she have um, open shoes at the beginning when she meets Bill
1: at the wedding chapel? Yeah, she does. Yeah, she's. He's got
0: great big heavy aggressive cowboy boots. That's right. And and there's that that very deliberate pacing towards and back from each other.
1: Yeah, yeah, she has the little um, flip flops with the post through the toe, but nothing else. Um, and even, I mean, when she goes to uh, the House of Blue Leaves, she's wearing the yellow trainers but has no socks on.
0: Mm. Mm. Socks are your enemies.
1: Well, not necessarily. They cut I'm- the
0: transmissions from the Earth into the feet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then um, again, if you look at the uh, the fight with Oren, Oren takes her shoes off very deliberately at the beginning of the fight.
0: Yes, yes, she does. Another thing we noticed when we were watching it this time, the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad all go off and do different things after B is executed. Copperhead, Vanita Green, goes off and has the normal life that B was trying for. So when she faces her down, she's standing in the Susie Homemaker home of the woman who succeeded where B failed. Oren went off and became Bill, she became the pimp and the leader of her own assassin squad. She emulated this father figure of hers. Bud went into exile and uh, Bud put himself in exile and limbo as punishment for everything he'd done without really fully confronting that. Again, he has ambiguous feelings about the whole thing. And L took B's place at Bill's side, effectively continuing where B left off.
1: When we were talking about that, it it suddenly hit me that, and I've I'd, I'd no idea why I didn't pick up on this before, um, but the uh, Maiden Mother Crone trifecta is actually represented really well.
0: You're going be hearing a lot of that in this series.
1: very likely. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry in advance <laughs> but the um, but first of all, the roles that Bee goes through um, when she's Bill's pet assassin. That's uh, her warrior maiden role. She when goes she's through gi-
0: uh, given to Pymay to teach.
1: Exactly. She goes through all the training. Um, and then at the point at which she's about to move on to the mother role, that gets cut off um, because you could interpret that as Bill trying to uh, restrict her development and keep her as his his maiden um, she then jumps forward to, you could argue, the, um, the darker element of the crone role, which is where she's coming back for revenge and killing everybody. Um, and then obviously gets to move backwards to, well, it's not really backwards because you can do them in any order, obviously. Um, but she gets to move to the mother role at the end of the film. The other members of the squad, certainly the other female members of the squad, all embody these elements as well so you've got um, Oren goes into the position of the crone or the wise woman she's the leader she's in charge of all of these people she's um, gone into uh, a position of power and also although it's hinted that Bill has helped her get there, she maintains that power on her own, and that whole scene with the uh, the bosses where she confronts Tanaka is about showing that that although she is this petite, um, delicate looking flower, there is this rigid power to her that means that she is quite capable of holding the position that she's now got. Um, Vanita, as you say...
0: Interesting that you compared her to a flower there. The song that plays when she dies is called Flower of Carnage.
1: Fits quite well then, doesn't it? To as you say, gets to go off and uh, take the mother role and have the uh, the home. Of
0: course, yeah. Not only does she does she get the home and the life, she becomes she the, the mother that B wanted to be so Absolutely. much.
1: Absolutely, and she even points that out. Nikki's about the same age as as her little girl would be now. Hmm. Um, so, so that obviously is is that element of it. And L, L is stuck. She has tried. To imitate B on many levels, to the point of going and training training with Pai Mei as B did, but her natural impulses couldn't be tamed, and so she lashed out at him when things weren't going her way. She has this uh, superficial physical representation that is similar to Bee's in that they both have, you know, they're both Caucasian, both tall, slender, long blonde hair.
0: Blonde is very significant. It
1: is, yeah. It, but it's it's the point of connection between those two, even though they hate each other. They do have this physical similarity, but L almost seems to try to step into Bee's shoes once she's allegedly dead, and she restricts herself. Um, I believe, although i 'd have to check this that Daryl Hannah is the oldest of the actors playing um, the uh, the female members of the squad
0: oh that 's a definite
1: okay. however, if you listen to the way she talks to Bill and the way Bill talks to her it 's very infantilizing he uh, He talks to her like a child, she responds like a child, she reacts um, occasionally in a very uh, impulsive, almost teenagerish way. Yes. If something's said that she doesn't like, but then she sulks, she pouts, she does not behave like an adult. Um and like I said, it's almost like she's
0: And her revenge on Bud is not very mature either. It's, no. it's spoiled.
1: Yeah. For me.
0: Petulant. Mm. You kill B, I will now kill you in the most skullduggerous way possible.
1: Yeah. But if you, again, if you look at that scene, the way she talks to Bud is not the same way that she talks to Bill. So that element of her is entirely hooked into her relationship with Bill. Um, And like I said, I think it's that she's taking on that maiden role that he was trying to keep B restricted at and saying, well, look, I will stay here voluntarily.
6: Mm.
1: And she never left him. The others left, went on and did other things. Elle Elle stays with him.
5: And he doesn't appreciate it. Actually, Bill's last bullet put me in a coma. A coma I was to lie in for four years.
0: Four years on, this is now very, very close to your favourite film. So it's, it's interesting that it hasn't changed for us. It's, no. it's actually gotten better for me. Um, and we've been watching a lot of Tarantino's back catalogue uh, in the past week. Um, pulp fiction's gone way down in my estimation... Um, I still think it's great, but it's, uh, it's less mature than Kill Bill actually is. Although Kill Bill seems very silly, there's a, there's a lot of themes being explored which don't even get vaguely touched upon in stuff like pulp fiction. Jackie Brown, however, starts to really hit that stride and uh, Jackie Brown's absolutely brilliant, maybe his, uh, Maybe my third favourite of his films, my second, is Django Unchained, which we're definitely talking about some point soon. Two nights ago we watched Four Rooms, which is rubbish, apart from Tarantino's section, which is still really quite enjoyable. And tonight we're going to watch Grindhouse. Properly, Planet Terror followed by Death Proof for the first time ever, with, I'll see if I can get hold of the trailers from YouTube. Ah. I'm fairly certain I'm going to hate it again, but uh, it'll be the first time we've seen it since we saw it the first time.
1: I didn't hate Death Proof as much as everybody else seemed to, so it'll be interesting to see if my perspective on it's changed.
0: It will. Either way, we're going to be talking Tarantino more in the upcoming months and years, so use this podcast as an opportunity to jump on the Kill Bill thread, and we'll talk Tarantino. In fact, there's actually a Tarantino thread already in existence. We'll resurrect that one. Like the bride. And next week we will be explaining what digital drift, the name, means. If you listen to the Pacific Rim podcast, you're, you're probably there already. Yeah, you've probably reached the same conclusions already. If you haven't listened to the Pacific Rim podcast, go and listen to the Pacific Rim podcast. It's brilliant. And it really sets up what we're going to be doing from now on. Yeah. Okay, that's it for episode one. What should we say instead of happy trails? How about we will do this, mother?
3: <laughs> we're going to own, own this mother,
1: mother for sure. To, that's not.
0: <laughs> and we're going to own this mother for sure. No, are <laughs> tired.
1: Neural handshake successful
0: so you have been listening to Digital Drift I've been Alex Shaw
1: I've been Sharon Shaw
0: and Neural, neural Handshake Complete
3: There's a nail in the door and there's glass on the lawn Tacks on the floor and the is on I always sleep with my guns when you're gone There's a blade by the So